When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Relatively Healthy is brought to you by the Forever Dog Podcast Network. Be sure to check out more original comedy podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com. Welcome to the Relatively Healthy Podcast. I'm Janie Stoller. And I'm Dr. Ellen Stoller. And basically this podcast is about medicine and health and we're going to take your questions, give you advice, and we have these amazing guests come on and we have a great one today. Um, Today's guest is Sam Wilkes. He's a standardized patient trainer. Hello, Sam. Hello. We're so excited to have you on. This is a crazy good topic. Um, (laughs) It's going to be awesome. Uh, So we're going to start things off. We uh, start the show talking about a medical myth that Dr. Ellen Mm -hmm. is going to debunk because that's her her, uh, forte, (laughs) saying no. So um, there was an article this week that asked the question, everyone's, it's been on everyone's mind, um, will a shark eat you if you're on your period? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think about that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Right? right? Like all the time, yeah. number one threat. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dr. Ellen, thoughts on this pressing matter? <laughs> so look, honestly, I'd never really thought much about this topic uh, before. Mm-hmm. Wow. But now that I've researched it for uh, this week's show, uh, so right, the the urban legend or what have you was that you know sharks are attracted to the smell smell of blood Mm -hmm. right and that oh a teeny drop of blood in the whole ocean if they detect human blood anywhere boom chow time they're coming right for you (laughs) so you know i i i found a couple articles there's also there's one uh from popular science there's also an article within the last year from vice everyone's other yeah the medical authority (laughs) source so the main point that both of these uh, very important peer-reviewed articles brought up is that uh, one, you know, over the course of an entire period, a woman only loses about six tablespoons. What of blood? That's crazy. <laughs> it's that just, yeah, yeah. So it seems like more. It feels like a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, this becomes that thing where oh, if you have like a small glass of water and you pour it over a you know a surface, it looks like a lot more. Mm, looks sure. like a crime scene. So <laughs> one, there's really not that much blood there. Period. No pun intended. Mm-hmm. And then two, that besides blood, there's a lot of other stuff that comes out. You know, as part of a menstrual cycle, you've got you know cervical cells. You've just got you know the regular self-cleaning oven vagina elements that <laughs> sure. come up on a regular basis. So even it, Oh, and the other thing that these articles um, bring up is that humans are not sharks' favorite food. Like, humans would like to think that, oh, sharks were exactly what they want to eat. They want to eat little fish. So even if they smell human blood, they're really not super jazzed about it. Great. So the debunk, 
are sharks all gonna try and eat you get up all in your grill when you're on your period no so this was like super relevant to one listener out there who yeah. was super concerned about it and now they'll sleep easier knowing yeah. that they can scuba dive <laughs> on the period and go mm-hmm. surfing mm-hmm. the big yeah. the big uh, scandal in what you just said to me is the tablespoon situation I mean I mean look if if somebody can always look because diva cups are not huge right even if you have to change like a diva cup a couple times during a period it's ultimately you could do a water displacement test. It doesn't things, that much matter. It's like it's a period to like ruin your life. Oh, for of just course. Six, six tablespoons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> great. Good to know. Okay. Great. <laughs> so now we're going to talk to our guest, Sam. Um, and we have so many questions for so you. So many. I'm excited. So just to start off, tell us a little bit about what you do. What does your mm-hmm. job entail? Sure. So a standardized patient trainer basically works with actors or members from the community, uh, maybe uh, who are just interested in communication or want the money, basically. Uh I will work with them and train them on a certain case or um, a certain set of symptoms and uh, they will memorize all that information and the backstory of this character and then they get interviewed by medical students so the medical students can practice their interpersonal and communication skills and then the other half of my job is working with medical students to help them be better communicators because that's something that's always come easy to me but it's not so easy for a lot of medical students. Wow and so you're employed by the medical school? Mm -hmm. And they have you on, like, are you, you work full-time and they, they like, every day do you go in? Yeah, and this is a full-time job. It's great. It sounds totally made up and <laughs> it sounds like a have, volunteer job. Do you have job. a background in healthcare or a background in performance? I am only... I only have experience in acting and directing. Huh. And so I was recruited into this field while living in Arizona by a director friend of mine who also, and a playwright friend, and she was doing this job in Arizona and she thought I would be good at it. And it instantly made sense, which is so weird because I have really no clinical background at all. I've learned a lot, obviously, by doing this job, but I really knew nothing about it. And I'm sitting there watching these interviews happen with the students to the um, patients and I can easily like analyze it and think about oh they they could have asked it this way and it would have elicited more information wow just automatically it made sense and i feel like this is one of those positions in the medical training spectrum that no one ever thinks about that it wouldn't occur to someone outside of like medical school or physical therapy school nursing school oh no that standardized patients are an integral part of the curriculum. And how much for you was it? Like in medical school? Oh gosh, the first two years before we were seeing actual patients, Mm -hmm. twice a week, we were having these one to two hour sessions where, because before you can ask actual patients like very personal, intimate, creepy questions, Mm -hmm. you got to first do them to an actor. Before you do a physical exam on a real person, like listening to someone's heart and lungs. And then of course, the sensitive exams. Right. You got to practice those on a standardized patient because it's better to have someone who's trained to work with students and in front of an audience mm-hmm. of your peers be like, this was right, this was wrong, this is good, this is bad, before you're out there on your own, kind of unencumbered, touch and poke and asking, right. prodding people. So when there is an exam, there's an audience? There's I mean, people... it's, it's the other students in your... So you're usually broken up into groups of... Oh, so in every medical school as well, you know, there is uh, basically a fake clinic mm-hmm. inside the... is like in one of the medical education buildings. So... It's, it looks like a real doctor's office. It's got mm. like, you know, the table with the butcher paper on it and like the little otoscope and everything. So there's a whole like a, a medical education or a patient simulation center where you simulate procedures and you simulate talking to patients and examining them as though you're in an actual exam room. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you're in you're basically broke up into groups of three or four so that the four students then 
talk to interview one uh, standardized patient, one right. SSP, right. as they That's call the him interim. in the biz. Right. Yeah, SP. SP. It's also a suppressed person in Scientology. Person, yeah, right? which gets confusing. It gets yeah. confusing. It also sure. means, uh, or it also stands for scholarly projects, which oh. got really confusing. Yeah. In oh. med- while working, who's in a SP medical is school. the SP? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so, do you like what you do? Is this interesting? And sounds like it. I'm obsessed with it. It's so funny <laughs> because, like, I grew up acting and directing and singing, and that's always been my total passion, and I love doing that and as soon as I found this I realized all my weird retail jobs that I hated and all my <laughs> sales jobs and acting and directing all prepared me for this weird job yeah. that is constantly fascinating there's never a dull moment <laughs> um, as you might imagine because you have all these actors with all these different personalities and then you have all these medical students with all these different personalities and you have to be able to switch between them very yeah. fluidly wow. it's, it's a constant I mean that this is like a very emotional group Across the board. Right. There's a lot of sensitivity, I mean, a I'd lot be of so feelings. nervous. Like, yeah. I can feel that. And so, what information do you give one of the actors? What do they get? Oh, yeah. What do they get? And like, is it their side, their treatment? What, what do <laughs> right. we call it in the biz? Right. Yeah. What's it, in the biz? We call them yeah. case scripts. Okay. Um, case but it'll have, um, you know, the basic medical information. So, it'll start with a chief complaint. So, I'm coming in with a cough. And then it'll have all of the, um, any kind of associated symptoms the person has been experiencing, like if they've had post-nasal drip or they've had a sore throat or they've, they were um, sick a couple weeks ago, but that went away, but the cough persisted. It'll have like all the history of present illness section. And then it'll have um, basically the backstory for this person. So like their whole social situation, where they work, how long they've worked there, who they're married to. sometimes, you know, it's about, okay, eliciting a patient's symptoms and coming up with a diagnosis. But sometimes when you are the medical student, it's really about like their social situation, mm-hmm. their backstory. Because mm-hmm. somebody comes in, oh, I have a cough. And then, you know, you say, and then they mention that they've got whatever, they live in like a certain environment. Or, oh, they haven't mm-hmm. been taking their medicine. And then it's the actual exercise is not to figure out what's going on, but why. Yeah. Because sometimes it's like, oh, you've not been taking your medicine. Yeah. Why compliance. aren't you taking your medicine? Right. And then the person's like, oh, I don't have a job or like, Mm. oh, I've been traveling a lot. And then the medical students created on, you know, then the medical students supposed to say, oh, we'll talk to the social worker. Oh, here are other resources. So it's like, do they ever really like act like Kramer on Seinfeld where they go into this like whole thing? You know, like this is a great performance. Yeah. I mean, there's opportunities for that for sure. I I think sort of from the outside, the acting seems like the big part of it. Like you're going to do this dramatic acting when it's so, that's Mm. such a small part of it for most of the cases. There are special ones where, you know, we do really important activities like about domestic violence Mm -hmm. and we do like, um, you know, death and dying or delivering bad news cases where Mm -hmm. those obviously there's going to need more acting skill. But a lot of it is like, I've had a cough and this is a bummer. So there's not really a lot of room for dramatic acting. But the other thing I wonder for these standardized patients, it's almost like a two, they're doing two things simultaneously, right? Because one, they're acting. They're like trying to, you know, act like they're sick or just give the medical student the information. But the main thing I think that separates standardized patients from just everyday acting is the standardized patients also listening and taking in and then trying to authentically provide feedback to the medical student about how their communication was mm. that to me seems like the harder part i think it to, is the hardest to teach part. and to do it's i and that goes back to that that misconception about what standardized patients do because the the acting part of it is so easy yeah. you just have to sit there and wait for them to ask you a question that will elicit information mm-hmm. but they it's the best training in being present in a scene that i can think of mm-hmm 
It also teaches you really a lot of skill about giving feedback, which is a really important tool in acting and directing to be able to see, to be able to watch the other person sitting across from you and really think about not only what they're asking you, but how they're asking you something so you can give them feedback and be super specific and really observe all of that all at the same time as thinking, okay, I have to be accurate with this information. I have to make sure I give out the information in a way that makes sense, in a way that's natural. It's a lot of stuff being managed all at the same time. And is there like something you see doctors doing all the time that you, maybe was surprising when you first saw it? Oh, I've, every doctor is doing this thing. Or like all the students are right doing this or that. Or... Uh, there are uh, an overarching theme is students think that the whole thing is about time management mm. and about like rushing through the whole thing. So mm. they do all the they have all these subtle smaller habits that are about controlling the conversation in mm. a way that is not conducive to good conversation. Mm-hmm. So it's asking a lot of really closed ended questions like yes or no questions. It's asking a lot of leading questions like would you say you use condoms 100 percent of the time? <laughs> so it's like trying to cut to the chase of all the information yeah. wow. and they don't think about the students. I don't think self-reflect on that a lot to think about like is there a better way for me to ask this question Mm -hmm. so that I can actually get the most honest you know and the most amount of information from every question interesting interesting would you is that something you felt I mean the big things are I'd imagine that you see students are interrupting that I mean and this happens in the clinical context too that it's if there's been studies done that you know, on average, a patient's allowed to speak for, I believe it's somewhere between 10 and 30 seconds before the clinician, and this is inpatient, outpatient, interrupts them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because part of it is like, as the clinician in real life, you're like, oh my God, this is taking forever. Just get to the point of the story. I don't mm-hmm. want to hear about the other 80,000 uh, things on your mind. But maybe the next thing the patient's going to say is actually going to be the clincher to mm-hmm. the entire story. And you're probably story. pressed for time. Right. Yeah. There is a time limit yeah. situation. Yeah. So I think that's a big part of it. I do think I empathize with people out working in clinics because you have to listen to people talk all day and you have to deal with probably the most annoying people that are in a vulnerable situation yeah. where they think that their situation is more important than anyone else in the world at that moment. So it probably takes a lot of patience that I would struggle to maintain. Do you ever have on one of the cases like a person secretly is just there to get pills? I So there is there are cases written for that because that's a real problem mm-hmm. in real life. I think at least in first and second year, which is a majority of what standardized patients are used for, that's sort of a high skill to force on the student. Mm-hmm. True. Because it's mostly about eliciting, oh, your chest hurts on the left side, your arm hurts sometimes, mm-hmm. you have diabetes, you smoke all the time, and you can't breathe. It's The onus is on the student to be like, oh, you're having a heart attack. Right. Like in real life, I would go and tell my supervisor to assist you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really about information gathering in the first second, first and second year and really like understanding the body systems and what and how things could be connected. Um, so, you know, people that are um, pill seeking or, you know, med seeking, that's really a pretty um, uh, subtle thing that would be hard to deal with in those in that context is there any kind of like uh screening process for the standardized patients i mentioned this because <laughs> no my big brush with stardom for standardized patients is oh my god yeah yeah this is great one so where i went to med school uh, i got a call from basically the person who had your job mm-hmm. one day to ask okay you know one of our standardized patients she's been away for several months she's coming back the reason why she was away is because she was starring 
on the second season of Rock of Love. (laughs) And so people wanted to know if it would be distracting to see her again now having seen her on television. But here's the thing, even before (laughs) then... People had already like let me Google all the standardized patients just because like they're wait, actors. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, this yeah. is hilarious. This is yeah. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and well, and, and so this particular woman who had been on Rock of Love actually won season two. So uh, her name is her name was Amber Lake. I don't know if that's still her name, but that was her name when she was on the show. Mm-hmm. But people had already like uh, the students had already found her, Googled her, and had seen like all of her lingerie modeling. Oh my gosh! Uh, online was she oh. good? I mean, she's a pretty lady. Yeah. So going back to googling the actors. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just assuming like. I assume that when you get these patients, it's probably the most interesting part of the day for you. Oh, guys. I mean, because it's such a nice break from like science and sitting like, there reading, you know, medicines and, yeah. and like, yeah. And I'm sure the people who come into this I mean, are I, all different. I mean, types. I guess the thing I will say though is I think that there's you must see across the spectrum in the medical students. Like some students are like excited to be there in their jazz, and they're like, "This is fun," and "This is funny," and like exciting, and I'm gonna try a bunch of different things. But some of these students are robots right. and like right. don't want to be there and any human they interaction. They probably need it the most. Yeah. Right. But then I'm sure that those, I'd imagine, are also the hardest students to give feedback to. It depends, When they're basically yeah. robots. Yeah. There's, um, there, you know, if you, it depends on the medical school too, because mm-hmm. some medical schools have a process to find the right students for True. their school. Yeah. If they do like multiple mini interviews mm-hmm. as part of the um, process. But some schools just are going basically on scores and at one interview. And those schools tend to have a lot of students who are type A personalities and they're also maybe total introverts. Mm -hmm. And they haven't had any reason to analyze their communication skills ever a day in their life. Mm -hmm. And many people don't. Right. And many of uh, medical students haven't had like a job in the past. And so um, or at least a job where they're interacting with a lot of people. So you know, something like retail would make people really good at yeah. interviewing patients, but they wouldn't have the clinical background <laughs> right, or right, any kind absolutely. of expertise. Totally, so yeah. there are a lot of people that struggle with it. So I, I think you're right. The people that um, are excited about it tend to be the ones that are already good at communicating. Yeah, and so sense. they're not in as vulnerable a position because they go there and they get to excel at something in medical school, which feels really good. True. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good to have successes yeah. in medical school. Wow. But then the people that sometimes are the smartest in the class really struggle with the interpersonal yeah. part of it. Yeah. And so, you know, that's when the jokes start about like, I guess you're going to go into surgery then. Or like <laughs> radiology. Yeah, where or you're radiology, not talking to right. patients. Or oh, research, so do you guys talk yeah. smack about, do you guys talk about the students? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not specifically. So there's a lot of rules about that, actually, mm. which is really funny. I'm I, like, as part of orientation, even for standardized patients, we have to be like, you're never allowed to even describe a student. Oh, like you can't talk. You can say like this anecdote about this funny oh, thing okay. the student said, but you can't be like, oh, have you had the tall guy yet? Oh, what? You can't even do that because, because we, we do that about the standardized sure, patients. Yeah. We'd be like, oh, the, you know, the red haired woman always does this or like that. The tall guy always yeah. does. And that. we expect that. But this is um, crazy. But I no we, idea. we don't let the standardized patients do that because think about if the patients are in a position to evaluate the students oh they can't go with like a preconceived right because right. then they're right. the, the people who haven't seen that person are going to be thinking all day i wonder when the tall guy's getting here or like this is the guy who stutters or right like, oh how do you guys handle if a medical student if their main problem is they have a creepy vibe <laughs> what is the feedback that you guys try to do to fix that that's that so seems harder than just an awkward student yeah that's hard to deal with and so a big part of standardized patient work is being a specific specific as possible. So when I train standardized patients, they'll start with things like those global sort of descriptors like confident or charismatic or creepy or awkward or 
um, distracted or whatever it is. And you have to learn to break that down. So think about like, what are the behaviors? What are the specific things that are happening that create that illusion of creepiness or whatever it is? So I did have a standardized patient come to me after one day of scoring. And he said, I had a student today who was creepy and I didn't write that anywhere. But I definitely got a creepy vibe and I don't know why I felt that way. So we had to have a whole discussion and I've gotten pretty good at asking mm-hmm. questions about like what was happening with this? How was eye contact? How was their voice? What, you know, what the basic so, behaviors so, so, are. So, so what were the creepy tells? So the creepy tells. Mm. So this is, I, I theorize that he was making a lot of eye contact but not being an active listener. Mm. So if I am Ugh. making eye contact but I'm not nodding my head or yeah. going mm-hmm or making facial expressions in response to you, then I'm just staring at you. <laughs> yeah. Right? So that's creepy. That's creepy. So, that's creepy. That's like a so jack-o'-lantern. That's, yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's not good. That's not but maybe that student was told, you know, two weeks before, you need More to make eye better contact. eye contact. So yeah. they're going, oh. and they're just trying not to blink and they're yeah. <laughs> and you're trying to like talk about something very personal yeah. yeah that's a horrible vibe and then what is the training like and who are the people for right. the sensitive exams right. so, you know, like so, vaginas so before we do pelvic exams on real people before we do breast exams before we do rectal exams testicular penile exams we try them out on these standardized patients mm-hmm. and again these are done in small groups so at least in my medical school on the days that you would do these uh, and I th- people are going to love this. Before you would go touch an actual human being, you would touch these anatomical models. Mm-hmm. So they make these like anatomical models of breasts or of vaginas. That <laughs> Which you would, look like, like sex toys. They really do. Yeah. And so like you put the gloves on, like you lube up your hand and it feels on the inside like you're Whoa. inside of one of these. I mean, like, look, I feel like this is another uh, the sex toy industry should also look at maybe these medical right. models. Yeah. yeah. So first you do it on the, like these plastic disembodied parts. Is everyone laughing? It's very uncomfortable. I mean, I would be like... No, I mean, everyone knows it's like an awkward day. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's like that awkward laughter that like... Because on for those exams as well... Um, so, you know, there's like an hour-long classroom portion before you go work with the standardized patients. And so for those, they tend to have, um, you know, instead of just like, oh, we're all going to watch one person listen to somebody's heart and lungs, everything's done in small groups. And so then you've got either like residents who are either in those areas. So they have like urology residents mm-hmm. or like OB-GYN residents, like leading those workshops. There's more people around because everyone just knows like it's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So then you go in and you actually do these things on the patients, the fake patients, the standardized mm-hmm. patients. But the standardized patients, it's just a very different vibe than your regular standardized patients. The yeah. ones who are... Ooh, because they're like willing to do that? Yeah. I, I mean, the, it's just more of a hippie vibe. Uh-huh. More of a freewheeling. Free yeah. yeah, let loose it. So it's... Yeah, and that's different for every school. There's um, some schools will just hire out of their normal standardized patient pool people that are willing to learn that mm. um and then others like uh the a lot of california schools have all contract to one company that trains those people mm. and sends that's, them to different schools also fascinating that there's a company yeah. that that is their main job is to find willing volunteers <laughs> willing to let medical students how brilliant sensitive. to start that bu- right? business because True. these people are probably experts on You're this right. by that's the end the one of thing it. they know and yeah and that these people can just drive away. you know all up and down the state because there's enough uc schools everywhere right so one week they're at berkeley right. you know one week down in san diego just having people laugh and touch their vaginas right. yeah like, that's their and, and they get paid good money because it's, it's hard to find money. people because wow most you know actors whatever i'm sure the pay is fine but the big money is the sensitive exams because you are really now, there are not as many people will, willing to do that. Here's a question I have on that. So assuming people are getting like a real exam, those, <clears throat> yeah. those patients. Yeah. So they 
don't have necessarily symptoms or like right. correct physical things going on. Right. So what is it also just like you pretend they so so, so, so no so with these physical like with the physical exam practice, no one's like pretending to have a problem. You with just these, it's, it's just practice like, like doing it to a person. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. like you're not gonna pretend to have a heart murmur or something. Right. It's right. you are not simulating those kind of findings. So right. this is really you. about Someone's skills. Not, like secretly pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. I only have one testicle, JK you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah and that's yeah. actually part of the screening is you have to have all of your parts. Like you can't oh. the men have to have prostates or they're it's right. not going to do any good to yeah. On them. yeah oh wow so i can tell you that for my first school they pulled out of the sp pool for those people mm-hmm. and did extensive training with them and those people those standardized patients were um uh, called gta gynecological training assistants or something like that and they were basically educators they were part of the education team and they taught using their bodies right, basically right well and that's right that's another mm-hmm. right versus listening to heart and lungs part of right being the standardized patient for a sensitive exam is you're also basically talking the student through the entire process right because yeah. you can feel if something's not right you can as tell. the patient or standardized patient yeah that's mm-hmm. crazy so they're yeah. highly trained in most situations it's not like hey buddy come on in because <laughs> um, then anyone yeah. could do it right yeah. and totally. any creepy person could yeah. jump in wow. on that but yeah. it does pay really well so that's rewarding but it's also really cool to because uh, and i've heard from the standardized patients that the students are so nervous oh yeah and so like you know they're careful and they want to do a good job and so it's cool to be in a position to reassure them and say and guide them through that and like be the sort of easy person to deal with first wow and i've actually done the male exams mm, um, oh. for a different university that i wasn't working for because i'm not going to teach the students and then no, walk over and be like yeah. turn around by the way <laughs> <laughs> listen to me i'm in a position of authority yeah by the way now i'm not wearing any pants yeah, yeah yeah so i i did those exams for a nursing school and or for a, um, an rn program and it it is a very vulnerable situation for them and you get to you know make good money teaching mm-hmm. basically it's very it's a wow. very rewarding kind of situation but then that must also like having been on that side of it also then inform like when you're training standardized patients to do this right versus someone who had only seen other people do it that like you're like no this is actually what happens when you're right i could describe position. it really well but i yeah. don't train i don't train the um gynecological no. <laughs> patients so i don't know anything about that um but usually there's like a clinical trainer that's going to educate those patients specifically um so then they can be real experts on it which is really cool it's i think from i I would imagine from the student point of view, it's like, oh, this is really weird that there's someone who's yeah. willing to do this. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I think even from the outside, that's just weird. But yeah. they are like, there's a lot of screening that goes into that. that. There's no like, raise your hand if you want to, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I never knew that. Open that's casting so call yeah, for right, a sensitive right. exam. Yeah, because I think you know it would be stuff? weird. Did you know they were this trained? I didn't, I didn't know that they were this trained. And mm-hmm. I, the big thing I didn't realize is that they're not supposed to talk smack about the... Uh, students Students. in that way. I think that, you know, from the student's point of view, there's, you know, you're being criticized by an actor, which I think probably feels a little crappy. Well, no, I mean, for a med student? No, well, and I will say, so we had to do them in um, med school. And then the first year, at least before I did residency, there was this like required practicum. And one of the scenarios I was given was just like so ridiculous and like so over the top that I just started laughing in the middle. I like broke character because it was like, oh, this guy is, like, gay, and he has, like, all these sex partners. It was, like, insulting, just, mm-hmm. like, how yeah, like poorly written it was. And I'm just like, oh, you want me to do an STD screen and talk about safe 
sex practices, but you've created this character who is unrealistic and mm-hmm. it just like wouldn't be a person. So I laughed because I'm just like, oh, this is absurd. Right, and so right. the feedback was, you know, when you laughed, it like right. made me feel like you weren't listening. <laughs> no, I laughed because I'm a human being and this story is like offensive and ridiculous. Yeah. Really funny. And if you just wanted me to screen you for STDs in real life, like that is not how somebody would act. So I feel yeah. like that's something too is like, I'd imagine a lot more time goes into developing these cases than the students, the trainees would assume. Right. Most of the cases have been around for years and have been picked through Mm -hmm. with a fine tooth comb where like the actors have given all of their thoughts about like this doesn't make sense or this is hard to deliver this part of it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and students and faculty members going, wait a second, I have a lot of questions, (laughs) you know, (laughs) where it doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. Well, this has been such a fascinating insight into yeah. this part of the We can talk about this like all day. There's like 80,000 yeah, questions. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a little break. Yeah. We'll be right back. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe to Relatively Healthy on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. All right. We're back at the Relatively Healthy podcast. Our guest is Sam Wilkes, who has given us all the tea on <laughs> the field we never knew existed. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And something we were talking about during the break a little bit is empathy, mm-hmm. which is something maybe you can't ever train someone to have. Uh, and, it's, and it's hard because right back in the good slash bad old paternalistic days of medicine, the doctor's job was just to tell you what to do, mm-hmm. give you the medicine, do the procedure, End of discussion. There wasn't, and now, you know, people are realizing, no, part of being a good doctor is also, like, being a good listener and seeming like you care, which is very... Seeming like you seeming care. Like right. you not care. caring. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're not always really going to care. No. no. Right. But the patient has to think that you care. And it's, you know, and as you pointed out, a lot of med schools are looking at, you know, board scores, research, extracurriculars, mm-hmm. but to try and screen for character menchiness grit right empathy these are much harder things to assess yeah right. so how, so how does the standardized patient training program process play into play into this yeah empathy you're right empathy is becoming a bigger part of admissions and everything and we i trained cases for um the multiple mini interviews where it really it had nothing to do with clinical empathy it was really just like oh, I'm your neighbor and I'm down on my luck and like have a conversation with this person who's having a really crappy day and see how they respond to this person. Oh, so this is part of the interview process now for some med schools? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Empathy will be a station. Oh, I see. You know, they'll do the 12 different stations for multiple mini interviews to be able to look at, you know, cooperation and some of the things you mentioned, grit. And then they'll really, a whole station is just dedicated to empathy where they have to have a seven-minute conversation with this stranger and try and have empathy for them. Wow, that's so interesting. Especially, like, as you can imagine, like, grad school, med school, interview day is, like, the most nerve-wracking day of somebody's life. And so I can only imagine, oh, now I have to act authentically empathic toward this actor. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, like, oh, do I have food in my teeth? Is my suit okay? Like, I have a blister. I'm tired. Am I stuttering? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all my hands too sweaty. Yeah. So then once the students are in the school, it is a um, a big part of what standardized patients focus on is empathy and and empathic behaviors. So it does go into how students ask questions, but it's even a big part of what we focus on um, checklist wise Mm. is things like exploring the patient's emotions and what they're going through, maybe what the underlying elements of something. So for example, uh, we have this one example case that we use um, where the patient has asthma and 
eventually they ask the person, you know, how are you feeling about all this? Because this asthma can be really overwhelming to a lot of people and really frustrating. And they say, honestly, I'm feeling kind of guilty because I know it's my fault because I started smoking again mm. and I've been trying to quit and I feel terrible. And so that emotional element is actually sort of the key in that mm-hmm. version. And it's not always, you know, we don't try and make that always the point of things. But um, it is, re- you know, it's such an important thing just in everyday life to have empathy yeah. for other, other people and try and understand what they're going through, even if you can't relate to them. But I see so many medical students who do put on the idea of empathy, um, you know, and try and show empathy. And that's where feedback becomes so important to the students. Um, I'll see students say things like, They'll be interviewing a woman who's just found out she has breast cancer. And they're like, I totally understand why you're upset. And the person's like, Uh... no, there's no way you do. Right. (laughs) And so then they're finding out empathy isn't just like saying these key phrases. It's being able to go, I, there's no way I could possibly understand what you must be going through. And that's empathy suddenly. And then it's, it's the supporting behaviors. It's not just the words. It's changing my tone of voice or getting quieter or, um, softening my voice. I mean, voice. part of me feels like this empathy training should just be part of like the high school curriculum. Everyday life, <laughs> In like right? the U.S. public school system. I mean, can you imagine if I mean, people yeah. you worked with had like that kind of training? Yeah, just I know. like, or just people you interact with on a daily, like, oh, somebody at the grocery store, like the person who cuts you off in traffic or right. whatever. Right. That if we'd all been empathy trained, even a teeny bit. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. And when you yeah. think about, if you ask, you know, a group of people what empathy is, most people don't know mm-hmm. or, ha- or haven't thought about it. They think that they're like, they think of sympathy. They think of mm. like, oh, I'm sorry you're going through that, which is part of empathy. But they don't think about the idea that it's this deeper thing of trying to understand someone else's situation and trying to feel with them what they've been going through. Mm-hmm. That's And that's a hard thing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And we get, you know, you think about, we're trained out of feeling emotions in public. We're trained out of like sharing our emotions with other mm-hmm. people. So empathy is a big leap for a lot of people and yeah. a lot of cultures too. Yeah. And then what about someone oversharing like a doctor, a student saying, well, I know what you've been through because my parent or something like that. I mean, that you you can't do that, right? Are you right, that would probably to? be dangerous too. And so something we talk about is even having empathy in that situation of not just trying to relate to the person because you can take the spotlight off of them when you do that, but thinking about if I were in this situation where I'm thinking about, I just, I'm afraid I'm going to have a heart attack because my dad had a heart attack at my age and he died actually. So I'm like afraid I'm going to have a heart attack right now. You don't want to be like, I'm going to make this about me. You wouldn't want the spotlight <laughs> taken off of you. You want to share this very vulnerable thing so you can have some catharsis. So even that takes a deeper empathy and thinking about like, what would I need right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And I'm sure you as a student are just trying to get the right answer. And you're the, just like, I mean, the other interesting thing about this is that, you know, once you're done with training, there's no like checkup. There's right. no like re unless like, oh, something <laughs> terrible happens. And like the state medical board is investigating right. you. Otherwise, you just kind of do whatever it is you're doing. Good habits, bad habits. Like there's no check in, tune up. Like we have to take medical knowledge exams every, t- you know, every two to 10 years to prove that your clinical skills, mm-hmm. like that your clinical knowledge is still up to date. And there's, um, you know, depending on your specialty, there can be like procedural components or oral boards. But this actual thing that the vast majority of physicians do every day, this like interpersonal mm-hmm. relating is not part of any of the recertification retraining. Right. The only way process. they might get feedback about that is like Yelp reviews. Right. And like, you know, it's <laughs> stuff where they don't want it out there. They right. don't want this. Or like press gainy surveys or what right. have you. But right, there's never and it's and that's 
you know, very one-sided. There's never, from someone who's trained as an, from an, an educational standpoint, to mm-hmm. provide actual feedback. Do you ever see doctors that have horrible empathy skills? Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's Some a of big these thing. guys are just dicks. But, and it's interesting, too, to see, like, who they're rude to. Like, right. uh... Are they patronizing? Well, oh, God. So, I mean, like, yes, it's like, it, yes, that is like the cliche of neurosurgeons for sure. Mm-hmm. But I mean, also that ends up coming true in like my own personal experience for, okay, for example, this patient that I saw in the hospital a couple of weeks ago, he had a benign brain tumor. Mm-hmm. They were able to take out most of it, but not the whole thing just because of where it was. And so... The patient had all these questions about, like, when do I have to come back? Like, is this tumor going to come back? By the way, I have all these staples in my head from where they took the tumor out. Like, who's going to take these out? Can I still shower and bathe and whatever? Yeah, things to know. Yeah. And so, so of course, it had been, like, five or six days. The neurosurgeon had not been by to see the patient. We're getting ready to discharge him. So... You know, He's I, just gonna walk out with yeah, the exactly. So I, I asked the nurse, out. "Hey, I, I asked the nurse, hey, can you call the neurosurgeon and ask him to come see the patient?" He has, he has all these questions, which I would have too mm-hmm. if I had a tumor taken out of my head, right? But not all of it was gone, like yeah. So the nurse calls the neurosurgeon, and he's basically a complete dick. He's yeah. like, "Why are you calling me? Just tell them this, this, and that." And so the nurse goes to me, "It's like, you know what? Like, one, he was very rude to me." Maybe if you talk to him, oh, no. like he would. No, so fine. I called him. He was a little less of a dick, uh-huh. but he still did not come in and see the patient. He's just yeah. like, tell the patient to come to our office tomorrow, and we'll take out the staples then, and like, don't submerge his head underwater, and like. Blah, so blah, he's blah, probably blah. someone who's so finely tuned in his skill, which yes. is like a crazy which is, skill, which is yes, right. taking out brain tumors, skill. and like yeah. I can't take out like yes, maybe I'm better at like making a joke or like giving somebody a pet on the shoulder i can't take out a brain tumor well that's right. why you're right. hosting a podcast <laughs> right that's right yeah. and he's not his podcast would be horrible oh that's true it would just be him yelling at everyone yelling at mm-hmm. although that could be entertaining for like a minute yeah. for a minute we should have him on yeah, yeah. <laughs> so why are you terrible with humans <laughs> yeah exactly because i saved their lives by taking out their brain tumors i am good right i know it is a cockiness thing for yeah sure. so crazy yeah but then I feel like, I mean, I'd rather have a good conversation with a doctor than get yeah. good help. Well, and, and actually, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, knowing that you were going to be on the show. Because, you know, sometimes you kind of don't care if the doctor is a dick. If you've got right. a tumor in your head, right. someone's got to take it out. Thank God this person right. is going to take You don't care if he's not. If you have a disease, like a rare condition that only like four or five people in the whole world know how to treat. Right. If that person's a dick, you're just going to suck it up and just like deal with their bad attitude. But it's funny. We expect everything from doctors. There's yes. no filling in these gaps. I That's I'd very true. That there's like, maybe this other doctor <laughs> yeah, could come in. And sometimes a doctor who's real nice then also has very poor boundaries and just right. gives patients what they want and right. not what they actually Need, totally. yeah, or just enables just like, addiction, and, yeah, yeah, or is just like missing other things that are also important, yeah. Wow. So it's it's hard. It's once tough. we have robots doing all the work. Oh yeah, it's all no, be yeah. Once AI yeah. takes over the whole thing, yeah. you go It'll into the yeah driverless car. Yeah. The <laughs> robot tells you what to do, but then the robot is also has like an AI code for like empathy. Right. Yeah. So the robot arm comes up and like pats you on the shoulder, but yeah. only if you consent to it. It's gonna be like this amazing. <laughs> it's gonna be so great. Life. I can't wait. Yeah. And we're just all gonna have like the Wally style. Yeah, exactly. Tiny hands and feet. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Okay, well, that's great. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about some questions. Maybe you can like give us some advice on how you might act it out. Um, <laughs> oh, so- also reminder: this podcast is for uh, oh, yeah. informational, educational, educational purposes only. This is basically mm. infotainment. So this is not a substitute for actual medical advice <laughs> from a licensed healthcare. Please go to a doctor. Yeah, actually go yeah. to a doctor, especially with the questions we got today. Yeah. Um, the first one is: sometimes my butt bleeds when I poop. 
Mm-hmm. And their details that they added are that they're in their 30s. They're a gay, not bottom man, just, just like a funny categorization. No medications and no prior butt injuries. Um, so I think your butt bleeding when you poop mm-hmm. is pretty serious, I'd imagine. That's yeah. like something's going on. Yeah. You gotta check I that guess out. it depends yeah. on the amount. Yeah. yeah. Is it is it like... But but as, as we mentioned earlier, a teeny amount of blood can look like a crime scene. Yeah. But it's, nonetheless, I agree because there is... A bunch of different things this could be. This could just be like hemorrhoids, right? Dilated blood vessels kind of Mm -hmm. at the bottom of your large intestine all the way to some sort of inflammatory bowel disease or God forbid some sort of malignancy. Mm -hmm. So no matter what, you got to go let someone take a a good close look and that person has already practiced this on a standardized patient. They've had plenty of training. They will be trained to sensitively examine They've already looked in a butthole that's bled, and that's been the well. No, no we, well, not literally. Yeah, yeah. you look in a regular one. You know? Yeah. So then you're like, oh, I can see what's wrong with it yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No prior butt injuries. That's really. It's very salient. Yeah. I like the way this person. Yeah. I they really were specific. <laughs> they were true. like, I'm going to tell you everything. Because I guess yeah. you know they figured, oh, if I'd mentioned I had a hundred butt injuries, you'd be like, oh, then this is all your yeah. fault. Close case closed. Yeah. yeah. I like it. I mean. <laughs> I think this person... Doc, my arm hurts when I do this. Stop yeah. doing this to your tush. This yeah. person yeah. would be a treat to the uh, doctor. I think they would love just having a conversation. Just the personality and the question alone. Oh, See, yeah. I'm sure. trying to read off the patient yeah. from right. what we get. Um, okay, next question. What's the deal with the whole chronic Lyme disease thing? Mm. Is my friend FOS, which stands for full of shit, and I didn't know until I <laughs> saw this. I was like, that is the best thing I've ever seen. Is my friend FOS, or is this really the source of all things terrible? Oh, by the way, things like FOS uh, are things that uh, we say to one another as healthcare practitioners, like diagnosis FOS or oh my God, diagnosis really? uh, PITA, pain in the ass. Oh, my God. So amazing. these things do not go in the chart. And then there's also ways to put in the chart when you think someone is crazy. Wait, what? Oh, uh, so some of my favorites are uh, non-physiologic. Like there's a non, this is like their tremor appears non-physiologic in origin. Oh my God, amazing. Or my other favorite is supratentorial. What's that? So, you know, like tentorial is like thoughts and ideas. If someone's like symptoms are supratentorial, then they're coming from like outside of their head. Yeah. Coming so, from yeah, the yeah. person being a crazy person. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Supratentorial. Supratentorial. That's hysterical. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, so shady. Yeah, yeah it's so shady. It is all the shade. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So you you can but, 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 but people will put non. I mean, especially because you know people can have, for example, non epileptiform seizures, or mm-hmm. people can have you know somatization where they're right taking the pain. Yeah, is, or mm-hmm. they're malingering. So people will put like non, especially a neurologist. If someone's like, oh, I have a tremor, but then their tremor or their symptoms just like there's no brain or nerve system that explain this Mm -hmm. then the neurologist will write this is a non-physiologic tremor or weakness or disorder or what have you whoa yeah Yeah. interesting so chronic lyme disease (sighs) i know from irene from real world that's my no so here's the thing so chronic lyme disease is one of these things like fibromyalgia interstitial cystitis like irritable bowel syndrome where the symptoms are certainly real but there isn't a clear physiologic underlying cause. Mm. I mean, the, the, basically, if the cure for your uh, ailment is antidepressants, mm-hmm. then well, I mean, that's probably the origin of your problem. Let's back up. Well, yeah. Lyme disease, do you always get it from a tick bite? Yes. There's no and way so... to get it. Besides, oh, and then, so one important thing about Lyme disease is that 
first of all, it only appears in certain parts of the country. It's mm. mostly the mid-Atlantic region. But and also then, Lyme, Connecticut, where right, it originated. Right, where it originated, yeah. So mm. mid-Atlantic, and then uh, kind of... Is that a, mid-Atlantic? I mean, kind of. What's mid-Atlantic? I don't know I don't what that know. is. Anyway, go on. Yeah. This is not a geography podcast. <laughs> and then kind of between like the Wisconsin and Minnesota border. Okay, so, so then in theory, a person gets Well, so you have to get bite. bitten by a specific type of tick. It's not that all ticks carry Lyme disease. It's like just, uh, I think it's like deer ticks. And then the tick has to be on you for basically 36 hours. So if you are in one of those places and you walk in the woods or a field, it's like tall grass is a thing, then you should just shower, right? Well, there actually are CDC guidelines for who after tick exposure, like if you live in a Lyme endemic area, if the tick by when you last went hiking and degree of tick engorgement, there are indications where, okay, you know, your physician should just give you prophylactic antibiotics because the risk of you contracting Lyme disease is quite high. Okay. Mm. But absent those particular criteria, uh, it's pretty unlikely. So then the next thing that happens if someone actually gets Lyme disease is they get uh, what's called erythema migrans, which is like a bullseye-looking right, rash where right. you get the tick bite and then kind of a red, red circle around it. So if you get that, great. Yahtzee, antibiotics, Yahtzee. you're good to go. That's mm-hmm. what you write on the yes, chart. you write yeah. Yahtzee. Yeah. Yahtzee. And then there are some <laughs> some conditions that people can get if you had Lyme disease and it goes untreated. So, it, you know, it can, uh, it can cause interruptions to people's heart rhythm. It can cause uh, joint swelling. It can cause specific neurological symptoms like a Bell's palsy, like partial facial paralysis. Uh-huh. It can cause um, encephalitis. And you have that the rest of your life? So that's the thing, is if you get one of these things, generally, you seek medical attention, you're given antibiotics for a prescribed amount of time, <gasps> definitely under a month. Oh, my uh-huh. God. Yeah. And then it goes away? And then it goes away. So, so then this <gasps> question of, like, post-Lyme syndrome, and I'm using finger quotes here, like chronic Lyme disease, is not a medically recognized <gasps> condition. So what's interesting is that, right, these quote-unquote Lyme literate, again, I use this term very loosely mm-hmm. providers end up putting people on antibiotics for months like oh, no. and so there That's was actually bad. an article um that the cdc posted within the last four weeks showing a review of basically complications people have had from being on these unnecessary antibiotics for so long because wow. these antibiotics are often given very high doses uh through an iv so people have had complications from having these like big fat ivs in their arm for a oh long time or you get like horrible diarrhea because all the good bacteria. don't doctors see this the ones who are like doing it don't they know yeah but then part of it is oh you know they they'll blame it on something else or they'll be like well this is just the cost of what you gotta do to Whoa. you know the people treat these long courses of antibiotics as like a fairly benign um intervention but right one you don't need them mm-hmm. and two they, they could actually be quite harmful so so you're generally team fos yeah so my recommendation is that if someone is concerned that they have complications from previous lyme disease that to really seek out an infectious disease specialist, specialist not google who's a lyme literate person oh where they live because they're that is like not a real thing Lyme mm-hmm. literate yeah to actually find a board certified infectious disease doctor to really discuss their concerns because the problem is you know you can run blood tests for lyme disease but if you don't really know how to interpret them mm-hmm. it's easy to say oh everyone's positive or because you can have blood tests that show oh you'd been exposed a super long time ago or the blood test can cross react with other conditions so if you're like maybe this is what's going on you should really ask the person who's in the best uh position to make that Mm -hmm. uh decision the other thing that comes up 
a lot uh, too, at least in the infectious disease realm, is besides people thinking they have chronic Lyme disease, there's a condition called delusional parasitosis. So these are people who are convinced that they have a parasitic infection despite all evidence to the contrary. And the very interesting... This is so specific. Yes. I mean, certainly this is like the infectious disease version of fibromyalgia, interstitial cystitis, IBS, all Mm. that kind of stuff, where the interesting thing is that with these patients who have uh, delusional parasitosis is that one, like there's no way to convince them Mm. otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they will end up not, they're not like, they're not like necessarily hallucinating, but then they will come to you and start pointing out like tiny (laughs) spots on their body or like these like alleged physical manifestations of their symptoms oh mm-hmm. even when there's nothing there and then the interesting thing is too is that <sighs> oftentimes you end up seeing that these conditions are contagious amongst family members where a patient oh will come in God. and say i've been having these symptoms oh now my daughter has them too or my mother has them or oh, my no. sister has them and the problem is is that you know you can run all these tests and explain to the patient hey great news we have no evidence that you have a parasitic infection isn't that great but then but they want an answer it. Yeah. for right. this thing that's right. on their mind when it's, it is ultimately a really super tutorial problem wow that's so do awful. you yeah. refer them to a psychologist here's the problem is that people don't like being told that they're crazy sure right. no, that's yeah. not people's weird. Weird. Right? yeah so 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 the way that sometimes that we that i try and spin it which is not always that successful is look you know we haven't found a physiological cause for your symptoms but it seems like it's really causing a lot of stress for you to have all these symptoms Having a chronic illness can be very stressful. Maybe, you know, we could get you to at least talk to someone about how stressed out you oh, feel. Stress. That's some empathy. Yeah. That was good. But then regardless, they end up just going to another specialist and being treated oh, for no. more uh, parasitic right. infections that they right. do not have. Wow. Oh, oh and so also the delusional parasitosis patients are the ones most likely to make you look at pictures of their poops. Oh. <laughs> People bring in pictures. Can I see a study people about that? Pictures oh, of wow. every, people take of everything so first of all people love taking pictures of their poops the uh-huh. other thing that definitely happens a lot is if someone comes into the er for like you know a giant blister or something that needs to be excised i have frequently had family members being like oh i'm gonna tape this where this oh, person's no. get, yeah no. yeah it's, it's like those pimple popping videos yeah, but like get worse on YouTube are you for the yeah. i mean if it's like of two friends then the other person can be like okay and this is crazy yeah i mean i i have definitely or like people who have to get like stitches or whatever as a doctor too you don't want that on camera like no it's of course you not right. i'm gonna do yeah. this you know yeah whatever yeah oh but my some God. people that is oh. they really enjoy taking oh, yeah wow. like yeah or like they put that. that you know next to like their bronze baby shoes in their <laughs> personal scrapbook or what have you do people ever ask to save a thing that's been excised people do as like a joke but most of it has to go it's to, like, to, I mean, like you well because you know like an appendix or whatever even if like <laughs> oh the person just had appendicitis technically it has to go to the pathologist he or she has to um, cut it up into tiny pieces just to prove that you don't have cancer gotcha, or what have you. i mean gotcha. i guess you can argue that oh with like foreign bodies the person should be able to have that returned because frequently the description will just be like plastic foreign body or yeah. like battery <laughs> battery yeah you know, How'd I really needed that there? AAA. Yeah. Like, remote is on the fritz. So if I could get that back, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
uh, I think the your those sort of like nuances of yeah. like the things people don't think about doctors deal with is it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I'm sure too the things that stand that students must say on occasion, just like the things people just like slip out or they're like inappropriate actions, mm-hmm. right? Just also must boggle your mind as well. It, yeah, it does. I mean, there's always there's all this hidden stuff because we're all people with right. our own you know circumstances and history, and then to come in and have all of them just come together has got a, it's a recipe for interesting stuff yeah I'm sure i'm sure <laughs> you've seen like your job just sounds so fascinating yeah. it's weird there's you know weird things happen and people make mistakes and it's very funny wow that's crazy that's great all right so this question's a bit of a long one and there's words you're gonna have to correct me on because right. i don't know some of these so um this person says i've had my next Next plan. Next plan. We did it. Okay. My next plan implant for 17 months. And for the first six months, I didn't have a period at all. Now I get super erratic periods. They can show up every other week, sometimes every week. They're different colors, sometimes light, sometimes dark, um, sometimes heavy, sometimes not. Will this ever change? I love my birth control because it's reliable. I don't have to worry about error. That said, it's very annoying to never know when I'm going to get my period or what kind of period it's going to be. Is that just the deal with progesterone? More info. This person is 28. They've been on birth control since they were 15. Um, This person says, I have a heart-shaped uterus with a deep septum, (laughs) Mm. which is why they couldn't do a non-hormonal IUD. Mm. And before Mm -hmm. they were on NuvaRing for like three years, but it was bad for their sex drive and before that they were on the patch and before that they were on regular oral contraception so they switched the implant because they wanted something that was foolproof and would be less damaging to the sex drive that's like this person's been on a lot of different i mean look honestly this is classic standardized patient presentation (laughs) this person has gone through past medical history history of present good job giving that yeah social history Mm -hmm. yeah we got the shape of the uterus yeah Yeah. Yeah. could answer a lot of questions right yeah now also just going on to that point of the heart-shaped uterus what is a uterus normally shaped like it's more like the like a like a bull with horns like i mean so so that's like the outside oh right so on the inside it just basically looks like a little like a little triangle okay yeah so the heart shape means that so that maybe she's got like yeah at the top like the muscles or whatever there's just like a little Oh. Divot or what? Kind of like you. sweet. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cute. It's cute. <laughs> it's good for Valentine's Day. Yeah. yeah it's nice. Yeah. So what is this implant? This is like. Oh, so Nexplanon. You know, so you know how people can get like a depot shot, like a shot mm-hmm. in the arm. Nexplanon is basically, it's like a little metal or plastic rod that's like implanted with those same hormones. In your so arm. So the benefit is you can, it's like, it's good for much longer you don't have to go back every three months and stays in a long time yeah and the other thing is is that if you're having a lot of bad side effects versus depot where you're just stuck for three months waiting for the hormones to wear off they can take it out Mm. easier so if you decide oh because i forget it off the top of my head how long an exponent's good for but if you decide before the end of the course you know what i'm going to try and have a baby or i don't want to take this anymore the doctor can just take it out so their period is all over the place and after 17 months it doesn't sound like that's necessarily trending like i would think you have maybe like a year to adjust or most of the time with um oh so first of all just it is a follow-up to our debunk this person can go swimming in shark infested waters (laughs) thank goodness no matter what is happening um so most Women's bodies will adapt to whatever hormonal alteration gets thrown their way within the first, you know, three to six months. But unfortunately, if this person is still having symptoms, they're probably not going to go away. Mm. This is most likely the result of her birth control. Right. And the problem is that, um, you know, what this person could try is talking to their healthcare provider about switching to something that provides both a mix of progesterone and estrogen because there's a thought that maybe 
the progesterone is the main cause of all this bleeding. And if you get on a contraceptive that also has an estrogen component, it'll help stabilize your uterine lining and maybe cause less bleeding. But I mean, ultimately, it's just got to be whatever works Man. for you. And I'm disappointed that this person uh, had a bad experience with the NuvaRing because that was going to be my recommendation for them until you... Yeah, not having to think about it. Mention that, yeah. I mean, they've, they really had everything. They can't do the IUD, so then this is like really... It's just got to be trying different stuff. Condoms, the and right. then right talking to your provider. Like, where are we on male birth control? Because you read this, yeah. and it's so infuriating yeah. that it's yeah. just a woman who just like wants to live her life right. like a normal person. Right. And right. then the man's like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So, basically. Right. I don't have to deal with I this. I don't have to yeah. do anything. Yeah, this is your problem. And like how much money... Like, I don't know what her coverage is, but yeah. I'm imagining right. that there's been a lot of money and time and right. worry. With all and this trial and error. So much trial and error. Yeah. So like, is male birth control happening? Yeah. Are we getting that? Because there's been conversation about it. Yeah. It's but been tested, right? It's been it's, tested, right? It's a it's harder process to... And like, I wouldn't trust dudes to... Well, because the problem no, is... No, because they're like, going to say, oh, totally. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's whatever. Because well, the problem is like, how do you... Right, because with men, it's like, okay, right, like the semen just like goes through these tubes and then comes out at the end. So then do you try and like suppress semen production or like do you just like try and block things in the tubes? It's a more, oh. It's, oh. it's harder to control huh. hormonally, right? Because hormonal birth control basically just stops ovulation. Oh. It takes the hormones that are already there, plays with the normal cycle that a woman would otherwise has and just kind of shuts that down. Mm. That's harder to do with testosterone God, it's crazy it is crazy the stuff that goes on inside Oof. i know that we just take for granted we yeah just take for granted that yeah. we're just sitting no i mean it's, it's insane that right that your heart has this very complicated electrical circuit and just beats all the time that mm-hmm. these electrical circuits they just go around and in you're a like little asleep loop. and it's and still... the fact that like yeah you go to sleep and you keep breathing uh-huh. it's right that your like, salivary glands make like the right amount of saliva for your mouth but like not too much that you're drooling it's crazy yeah, everything your eye see is upside down and then your brain flips it like yeah. not to make light of it but no wonder sometimes your butthole bleeds or you get like <laughs> yeah. it's just like things it seems like lucky. It should be that's all that's happening system. to you yeah the system yeah. the system's crazy yeah it's such that's a weird crazy. yeah yeah wow yeah so i'm sorry we don't have like a definitive answer for this person i'm sorry i mean unfortunately months. it's just go back to your provider and you know see what yeah. other oral i mean oral contraceptives are frustrating because you have to take them at the same time every day and if you miss one and you and don't that's, know that's what's so weird about birth control you don't know until like, you've been on it for just, a bit you have to keep trying right. until you find it and it's really frustrating yeah. Um, and then different ones are covered and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm glad we have like Trump deciding what's going to happen with. Of course. Uh, oh, good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. someone smart. <laughs> yeah. Someone smart. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. Who, like knows finally. what he's doing. Yeah. Who's great. a you know, big proponent of women's health. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. For sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's fine. Oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> um, yeah. So I hope that helped. Um, and so we're going to talk about one final thing this week in hysteria. What's in the news? What's crazy? What's going on? Um, there was, I don't know if you read, there's like this column well in the New York Times where they talk about like a lot of like physical science and, and exercise trends where I'm like, first of all, who's putting all this money into this yeah. crazy research? Because yeah. there's other things to research. I mean, also, I would point out that the <sighs> one of the problems is, is that this column is called well. So you're oh. not treating sick people. Yeah. These are like healthy people with like too much too much time. money. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. too much free time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, if I work out for 20 minutes a day versus 25 minutes a day, it's so different. Well, you know what? Get a hobby. <laughs> Get a life, Because man. that's actually the reaction I had because the article was about should you do a hot bath before a workout to adjust your body? Who has time to take a hot bath it's before a workout? for Seriously. 30 minutes. Also, that also means that you have a bathtub. I don't even have a bathtub. And you like can clean it. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> another piece of it was it was like, because all these articles about like how to improve your performance with yeah. running. Like who really cares? Thank you. I mean, unless you're like, it's a small oh, audience. yeah, Boston right? Marathon, got to get under two hours, right. right? Like, so I think the hysteria we're going to like dispel here is that people should like 
spend that much Look, effort. Look, if it's hot out, get up early or work out late. Yeah. So the conclusion was that you could take a 30-minute bath before you go for a run. Your body will adjust to the heat. Yeah. But like, you're an idiot. Don't do or, that. Or you know what? When it's real hot, that's nature's way of saying run more slow. Take yeah. your time. Yeah. Bring a water bottle. Stop trying to kill yourself. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> take a rest day. It's not a competition. That's so crazy to me that someone would be like, I'm going to take, I'm going to set 30 minutes aside for a yeah. bath before work. Before I work if out. If I have to walk upstairs, <laughs> I've given up. No. I won't no. do it. No. I have no to way. change my clothes. I'm good. Yeah, 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 I'm good. I'll just die young. Because then who wants to put young. on their workout clothes? Like once you're like, you take a hot bath. Oh, great. Now I'm going to put on like my stretch pants. No, I'm, my show's on. I don't, I can't work. I can't do this. Whatever it takes to yeah. get out of it. Yeah. The fact that these, this was a study that got funded. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, although, I mean although, enough people were curious yeah. about that. Yes. They're like, we need I mean, to put some money in this. Here's a grant. I mean, I will say a lot of these studies end up being done in other countries. If that makes you feel better about where American science dollars. They don't. They you know, because everyone in Norway already has like socialized healthcare, so they never get sick. So they oh, can just right. spend money on they this kind of baloney. Yeah. Right. They don't have like people dying of cervical cancer. It's right. literally a guy sitting in like an ice, like an like a igloo being like, oh, yeah. you know what I'm wondering about today? Yeah. And just here's all this money. Because everyone like lives till 80 and is very healthy. Oh, so we can just know we have time and resources to run this study. Right. And it's it. their dissertation or something. It's like they're yeah. they're off uh, in school again. Yeah. And they have to think of something no one's yeah. done before. Oh, well, like, yeah. If oh, I want the government to keep paying me as a science researcher, I need to make up a science project and Everyone's already done do plants like classical music or hard rock. <laughs> Everyone's already done like the volcano with like the baking powder. But I will say I do appreciate it. It ends up in the New York Times and the conclusion is always like, one, it's either we don't know. Right. <laughs> After all this, I read the article or it's like, you can increase your, you can decrease uh, your mile time by a second. Right. If yeah. you do If you do, all if you take an extra half hour back. So yeah. it's yeah. never yeah. valuable. Yeah. yeah. No, not worth your time. <laughs> not worth your time. So don't do that. Yeah. yeah. Like just don't. Just do don't that. do it. That sounds crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's been the podcast. Thank mm-hmm. you so much, Sam. You've been an amazing guest. I had a blast yeah. and I'll come back anytime you want me. Oh, I love we, it. We are going to take you up on that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and so if you have any questions for us, you can call our hotline, which is so cool. <laughs> it's one eight four four stolar stol L-A-R-X, like R-X, like prescription, still R-X. Or you can look us up online. We have um, a Facebook page that we are slowly launching. A slow, a slow launch is always best, <laughs> um, <laughs> especially social media. Take yeah. your time. Yeah. Sure, do yeah. it right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just like look us up and complain. And I'm sure I I feel like I've said some offensive mm-hmm. things in this podcast. I've already backtracked on them. And d- yeah. But don't like go back and listen, but just I'm sorry. And if you live in the L.A. area and you have an interesting either job in the healthcare field or exposure to some element across the healthcare spectrum, not chronic Lyme disease, please do feel free to contact us and we'd be happy to consider having you on the show. Or if you are Irene from the real world, <laughs> we will make an exception because I would love to get Irene. Yeah. That's she, she, she would be the gut. Yeah. yeah, she'd be the gut. All right, well, thank you very thank much. You. <laughs> this has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Boehm. For more podcasts, please visit foreverdogproductions.com.